Well, good evening. We're thankful for your presence this evening, for those who have gathered here to open up God's Word and study a little more together this evening. I always find Sunday evening to be a little interesting, not necessarily in a bad way, but as we just think about the week that lies before us, many of us in different ways and different things that we face, but hopefully encouraging each other as we go on our walk. As we think about the different things that lie before us, the different people that we will encounter, our time together, especially on Sunday evening, is as important as anything else as we think about encouraging one another and building ourselves up. I know this church here at Saudi doesn't exactly feel that way, but I know many people who, you know, just don't meet. Some can't meet when they can't get out and have maybe members who can't get back on Sunday evening, but some who just choose not to. I think it's one of the most encouraging times of the week, not only on Sunday morning, but especially Sunday evenings and Wednesday nights as we gather together. We just want you to know how much we appreciate your presence this evening. I would mention now, we'll say it again, the announcements, but again, don't forget the teachers meeting in just a few moments as we finish our services. If you have the opportunity and would love to teach and like to teach in our program here, we'd love to have you. We'd love to share with you some of the things that are being planned and looked at. Uh, We need good Bible class teachers. We need Bible class teachers who will prepare and study not only teach our children, that is an important thing, but teach everyone as well as we think about encouraging one another, not only from the sermons and our time of worship, but even in our time of classes. And we look forward to encouraging our teachers and and organizing that program and thinking about those that might be willing to help. It's a little blurry there on the screen, of course, but I use this slide simply to remind you that over the last few weeks, we've looked at a series of lessons entitled Lost in the Credits. And of course, that's a little blurry and it's a little small. But that may be a good idea of what you think of when you think of what it means to be lost in the credits. Because a lot of times it might as well be blurry, it might as well be small, we don't pay that much attention to them anyways. Which of course is the thrust, the idea behind these lessons. There are many people who would work on a movie set in particular who get their name onto the screen... And I think I mentioned this the first Sunday that we had one of these lessons, but in doing some research and looking, you know, a lot of times it's negotiated through uh, the different groups and through the agents and, um, you know, through all of these different people to who can get their name in. And a lot of times maybe a particular set of workers or a particular company will only have so many names that will be included. Uh, I know one of the, the articles I found, one guy mentioned he had done three or four jobs, but he's only going to get his, his name in the credits for one of them. A lot of us, that sounds unfair, you know, but at the same time, that's the way it works when it comes to the credits. We've talked about people who had been lost in the credits. I want to share with you tonight, you may be familiar with some of these, but when we think about those who are lost in the credits when it comes to a movie, maybe you've paid attention before to some of the names that are used, some of the jobs that actually come up on the screen in the credits of a movie. One of those is called a gaffer. The gaffer is the head of the lighting department responsible for the design of the lighting plan for a productions, a production of a movie. You know, again, you sometimes the, the name of, of someone's job kind of stands out at you. You kind of laugh. You wonder what that person does. But the gaffer is the head of the lighting department. You may have seen this word before. We notice these sometimes, the grips. The grips are the trained lighting and rigging technicians. If you've ever been on a movie set or perhaps driven by one, maybe even in Chattanooga or somewhere, and all the things that go into it have to be moved around, there are grips. There's a key grip. There's a best boy grip. There's a dolly grip. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if they just make these up as they go along sometimes, but all of these grips are involved with the rigging, with the lighting and the operations that go on a set. There's even a Foley artist. 
That is part of a movie sometimes. The Foley artist is the person who creates the post the post movie, or as they're putting it together, syncing the sound effects for a film. Once again, when you see someone walking and their feet match up with the sounds of the crunch of the gravel, or they go to punch a wall and, and you hear the thump as they punch into the wall, you don't think much about it. But a lot of times filming those things, you know, it can get a little lost or it can get a little off or some of the uh, dialogue, some of the body movements might not match. So the Foley artist is someone who has to go in and make sure those things match when the movie goes into post-production and is getting ready to come out. And of course... That is actually a person's name. Uh, Jack Foley was a Hollywood sound editor who was one of the first uh, who was credited with doing this type of thing and this type of work. We see names like that and we don't think about it very much. This morning we looked at Genesis chapter 11 and we talked about the fact that there's a whole list of those in the genealogies of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We said those folks aren't even mentioned any place, other place in the Bible. So when it comes to other folks in the Bible who maybe are people who are lost in the credits... We put forth this idea time and time again that a lot of times in our life and in the times of the Bible, people who are trying to follow God's will for their life, we see a lot of ordinary people. Ordinary people who can be made extraordinary by God. Now certainly in the time of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we think about the miracles that were done by people uh, through the power of God. Those are folks who are really making an impact. Okay, That's something extraordinary. Uh, I can't stand here before you and perform a miracle that would get me on TV or get recognition for the Saudi church or anything like that. That doesn't mean that I can't do something. And More particularly, we want to think for you about yourself that you can't do something that would be beneficial to the church to the kingdom, to helping God and what takes place here upon this earth. The idea is that whether we sometimes feel ordinary or extraordinary, with God's help, we can do some wonderful and great things. It may not get us on the news. It may not get us in a movie. It may not, it may not get us a lot of recognition worldwide, but it's having an impact on those that we come in contact with. Tonight we want to talk about a group of people, if you will. If you've got your bulletin and you're filling in the blanks there, we're going to talk about the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah. Now, if you've got your Bible in front of you, be turning to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. And we're going to come there in just a moment. The screen says Psalm 46. We're going to come back to that in just a second. We want to begin understanding who the sons of Korah were by understanding who Korah was. And we're going to talk about Korah here in Numbers chapter 16. If you've got your outline in front of you, we'll go ahead and look at the first point together. The sons of Korah are made extraordinary, even though they might have can be considered ordinary or not known by many people, because their background could have swallowed them up, but didn't. Their background could have swallowed them up, but didn't. Now, that's worded a particular way. In fact, I changed it on faith on Friday morning before we got the bulletin. And as I was studying while she was working on it, I had to go back to her and say, no, no, it needed to be the way it was originally because it's going to make sense when we talk about the story of Korah here in just a moment. In Numbers chapter 16, we read about the rebellion of Korah. As you look at the first few verses there of Numbers chapter 16, we read about some folks. One is Korah. Then we read as well about Dathan and Abiram and On. Now, these are, Korah is uh, a Levite, the son of Levi, or a descendant of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram and on are sons of Reuben. Now, these folks are going to gather together, and they're going to take, in verse number 2, 250 leaders, 
or princes of the congregations. And it says at the end of verse number two there, men of renown. Now, Korah, let me say this carefully, Korah is a Kohathite. All right, Korah is a Kohathite. The Kohathites were tasked with moving and setting up the holy furnishings of the temple. That was their job. And it would seem here that Korah doesn't like that job. He wants a better job. He wants more recognition. As well, the Reubenites, those that are descendants of Reuben, these other three folks, seem to be upset with the fact that they had not gone into the land of milk and honey yet. And all of it amounts to is a getting a big stir together. And those trying to stir the people up. And we have on our hands a rebellion. If you've got your Bible open, open look at verse number 3. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why? Why then do... Do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So Korah and these three folks, at least, gathering the people together, stirring up this rebellion against Moses and Aaron, the chosen leaders, chosen by God, the chosen leaders, they rebel against them because they're unhappy. Now, this is a little interesting considering what takes place in the book of Numbers. It would be amazing that Korah would even try this rebellion at all. You know, back in Numbers chapter 11, uh, it, it comes to the fact that when Israel murmured against Jehovah, speaking evil in the ears of Jehovah, the Lord consumed some of them with fire. Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. When Israel complained later in Numbers chapter 11 over not having flesh to eat, God brought a plague upon Israel, and many died. Remember when Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses in Numbers chapter 12. They want a part. God struck Miriam with leprosy. And so on and so forth, even in the book of Numbers, we see the people who would go against God receiving punishment from Him for speaking out against Him and His plan and what He has set up. Yet here we come to Numbers chapter 16 and Korah gets the bright idea and gets the group together and says, let's rebel against Moses and Aaron because they're doing too much. If you still got your Bible open there to number 16, look at verse 13. They say, we will not come up to meet Moses because Moses tries to separate them. He tries to separate Dathan and Abiram. They said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you should keep acting like a prince over us? You thought the church had issues sometimes today, all right, with people wanting to be in charge? Here we find then saying, a bunch of people saying, who put you in charge? They don't want to hear it. Look on down in verses 26 and 27. Moses decides with the help of God, we're going to see what God has to say about the matter. In verse 26, and he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram come out, came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. There's going to be a little bit of a test here, if you will. Not a test necessarily just Moses, but on God's part to show the people who is in charge. And Moses is relaying this. And he's telling the people, here's your warning. Here's your warning. Back up. 
Step away because you are going to see here that God is going to prove who is in charge. We go on down to verse number 30. Moses is continuing to speak and he says, But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opened its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. These men have rejected the Lord. Moses says it's going to be a thing from God. It's going to be the fact that the earth is going to open up and swallow them. And you are going to understand just as much as you would with any other miracle that God is doing the work here. They've not rejected me. They've rejected God. We've talked about that in previous lessons here recently. About the idea that when man rejects God, you know, the word of God or rejects the preacher or the church, they're rejecting God. The same way this morning. It's not just about Gideon. It's not just about what even what Jesus would say there, but it's about those who would serve God. They would not take it upon themselves. Look at verse 31. Let's read through verse 35. Continues on. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking, that's Moses, he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Verse 34. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And look at verse 35. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense, according to what was taking place here at this time. The ground opens up, swallows them, and fire comes down and consumes the 250 men of renown, the leaders, the princes, who also join into a part of this rebellion. Notice again the first point here. When we think about the sons of Korah, and we're going to talk about them in just a moment and get away from Korah, but you've got to understand what happens with Korah to think about the sons of Korah. Their background could have swallowed them up, but didn't. When we read about the sons of Korah, and we are going to talk about them specifically here in just a moment, they didn't follow their father and his partners in rebellion. Now, if you've got your Bible, flip over for just a moment to Numbers 26. Numbers 26. Sounds like a lot of people died there in Numbers chapter 16. But in Numbers chapter 26, beginning in verse 9, some of the names of, of people are listed here. We're taking the second census of Israel. And it says in verse 9, a little further down, these are the Dathan and Abiram, representatives of the congregation, who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together when Korah and when that company, with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. But look at verse number 11. Nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. Now, as we took a quick look over Numbers chapter 16, again, a lot of people dying, a lot of swallowing up, a lot of fire, a lot of people consumed together. But Numbers 26 reminds us that the children of Korah did not die. So it appears here that the sons of Korah can be noticed, first of all, and along these same lines, that their background could have swallowed them up, and that is a play on words for what takes place there, but it didn't. We think about Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, which says, The soul who sins shall die. 
The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. They didn't follow their father and his partners in this rebellion. Now, we know, and we've talked about this some in our Bible class on Wednesday evenings here in the auditorium, when it came to the kings of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, when we see the word sons sometimes, especially in Old Testament, it could mean son, it could mean grandson, it could mean descendants. So we might be talking about those who were gathered there in that moment, but even others who are descendants of Korah, who are going to be following on down from him. But when we talk about the sons of Korah, and we're going to look at what they did, some of the things they did do, one thing we know is they didn't follow in the rebellion. Their background, their family history could have swallowed them up, but it didn't. As well, a second point here is that they didn't defend their father and rebel against God. They didn't defend their father and rebel against God. Now, we're going to ask you to think for just a moment as we talk about some of these points tonight, and mainly talking about sons and fathers and grandfathers, think a little bit about our families. That's hard sometimes, because as I look around this room, I've gotten to know a lot of you very well. I know some of your family history, and some of you I don't. Some of you know a little bit about mine, some you don't. But but we all have various various phases of family history. Some go way back, generations, generations of those who've been members of the Lord's Church. Some who are first-generation Christians, maybe. We can't really do anything about that. But it's important for us to think about that because of what has those who have come before us and gone before us. We think about the sons of Korah, they didn't defend their father and rebel against God. Maybe you know some examples from congregations that you've been a part of. Maybe you know some family members. But churches often have to deal with families and friends with people who want to attempt to defend their family up to the very, up to the very point that they can even if it goes against the word of God, even when their actions are indefensible, they will do their best to defend their family. That's, that's a dangerous place to put ourselves in sometimes. We know that blood is thick. We know that our families are very important to us, and they should be. We know that what the Bible puts forth is how we should take care of our families. But oftentimes, we allow what we call love And we began looking at that in the adult class over here this morning in adult classroom one. But we began to look at what love really means. And when love includes discipline. And sometimes when love includes that other word that we use sometimes in the Bible, we talk about disfellowshipping those. Church discipline, maybe. But sometimes folks would allow their family members, their feelings about their family, to get in the way. May we learn from the sons of Korah tonight, and may we think about in our own lives that we need to learn to defend God and His Word in all things. That's hard because maybe our parents took great care of us. Maybe our grandparents took great care of us. Maybe our great-grandparents were good people, even though they never darkened the door of a church building. And it puts us in very uncomfortable situations. But we need to learn to defend God and His Word, sometimes even above family. Psalm 19 and verse 9 says the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God has revealed his truth to us. God's revealed truth is determined by him to be right and to be just and to be the best way that we can live without exception. 
We said this morning in our class over here that, that we get off on love sometimes because people want to use their feelings to define love. Not what God has said. We know that John tells us in 1 John that God is love. If we would remember that and practice that, then we'd be a lot better off when it comes to situations. I'd be the first one to sit here and tell you that I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it means that we would handle them the right way, the way according to the truth, according to what God has said in his word, because his judgment is true and righteous. His judgment is just. His judgment is best. And even though that puts us in uncomfortable situations, we need to do our best to remember that. That we don't need to sometimes defend our family and rebel against God, but we need to stand true and firm to the word of God. As well, this evening, not only did the sons of Korah not rebel, but they used their talents in God's service. I told you we'd get here in just a moment, but we're going to look at some of the passages that discuss what the sons of Korah actually did do. If you've got your Bible, you might look in 1 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 19. 1 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 19. It records for us, and I don't know if you've ever read through the Bible in a year. You know, when you get to 1 Chronicles and some of the places here, it gets a little tough to read through all of these lists of things and jobs and names. 1 Chronicles 26 and verse 19, these were the divisions of the gatekeepers among the sons of Korah and among the sons of, of Maria or Maria there. They were gatekeepers. One of the versions you may have in front of you might even say porters, but they were doorkeepers. Now, I told uh, Sister Frances Everett this morning, we both kind of got stuck holding the doors out front. I told her, I said, we're going to talk about gatekeepers tonight. Because she said, you know, I can hold the door here. I said, well, that's an important job. Just as much as anything else can be important. Just as much as teaching Bible class can be important. Taking out the trash can be important. And anything else that comes to helping the Lord's church do what it needs to do. When it comes to cleaning or, or taking care of something that seems very difficult or something that people don't usually want to do even to the things that are great. We think about the words in Psalm 84 and verse 10, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'm willing to bet that some of you have heard that verse before. But I don't know if you've ever noticed, Psalm 84 has attached to it the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah knew what it meant to be a doorkeeper. To be the person who would stand there at attention and watch the door or be the gatekeeper. And then these words are written, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be the, the, the Bible class teacher, the one who takes the trash out or mops the floors or again, all these other jobs that, that we sometimes think that nobody wants to do. And it takes someone to do it. We appreciate Brother Jerry very much and a lot of his work. He and I have been together here several mornings over the last few weeks and appreciate those who take care of the building. And we think, well, it's about the song leader or it's about the preacher, it's about the elders. It's about every single one of us doing our job. Not only do these folks here not rebel, but they use their talents as they saw fit as they could. And one of those ways was to be a doorkeeper. But number two, some of them were songwriters. Psalm 42, 44, 45, on down included in there in Psalm 84. If you look at some of these psalms, and you might jot a few of them down and you can look at them later, are attributed to the sons of Korah. Some of them were songwriters as well. 
And we don't even think about that many times because, because, of course, when it comes to the Psalms, we think about the sweet psalmist of Israel, David, and rightfully so in the words that he wrote. But what about these words? As the deer panteth for the water. Psalm 42 in verse 1, attributed to the sons of Korah. What about Psalm 46 in verse 10? Be still and know that I am God. Words that we sing even still today by the sons of Korah. Not only did they not rebel, but they used their talents in God's service. It's a simple question. What can you do? What can you do with your talent to serve God? It may not be the song leader. It may not even be the Bible class teacher. But it may be something simple that helps the work of the Lord, the work of the church here, even at the Saudi congregation, to go further, to reach out to those who are lost. Many things can be done. We just have to use our talents in the service of God. Finally this evening, one of the lessons we can learn from the sons of Korah is that our family history does not define us. God does. Our family history does not define us, but God does. Now, as I said just a few moments ago, sometimes we look at our family history and we're proud of it. And rightfully so. We're thankful that our parents were Christians. Our grandparents are on down the line. And and that's a wonderful and great thing. But some people look back at their family history. Some people look back at their personal history. They say, you know, it wasn't always the best. It wasn't the greatest. But that's okay because that doesn't have to define us. God does. I think one of the most powerful verses in the New Testament begins, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the list of those who will not, plain and simple, be in the kingdom of God. But Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But, that little word, but. You, you might have been that way, your family might have been that way, your history might be that way, but you don't have to remain that way. Your family history does not define you, God does. And praise be to God that we have an opportunity to be washed, sanctified, and justified. That whatever is in our past can be in our past. We can stand clean and pure in the sight of God. God defines us. He adds us to the church. He makes us children of His. When we are obedient to His will and to what He has told us to do in His word. To become obedient and to follow after Him. Our family history doesn't have to define us, even though we feel that way sometimes. We, we get down about things, and we, we look at our family, and maybe we're embarrassed by some. Uh, maybe we don't even talk to some anymore. Maybe we look at our own past, and we say that God could never forgive me. He could never allow me to be a part of the church. Our family history and our personal history doesn't define us, but God does. And we're thankful for that and for the opportunity to be washed and sanctified and justified. The point this evening is... We have a choice. We can change our legacy for good. We can leave a legacy as well that might need to be overcome by our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. The choice is ours. Will we leave a legacy that is good, that people will look back one day and say, you know, I'm thankful that my grandparent or parent made their life right, was a child of God, was a faithful Christian, Or will we leave a legacy that maybe one day our descendants will say, 
You know, I don't know that I want to talk about my parents or grandparents because of the choices they made. Yesterday at the Dayton Lectures, Alan Hires preached a lesson that was very encouraging. He talked about the, the influence. The whole day was on the power of influence. And he gave several examples, as, as even other of the speakers did. It talked about, you know, those that would leave a legacy. Those who can go back and trace back to their history. The preacher, the traveling preacher, who went around and baptized their grandparents, who then taught their parents. And because of that, they are standing there today as Christians. What kind of legacy are we going to leave? It's easy to get lost in the credits. Perhaps you never thought about the sons of Korah before, or the fact that they were gatekeepers, the fact that they were songwriters, the fact that you sing even some of those same words today. But we have a choice, just as they did, to think about our life and our future and not worry about what our family history might be. We can allow God to define us. That's the question that comes to you this evening as we conclude our lesson. Where do you stand in your relationship with God? Are you a Christian tonight? Have you become gospel obedient? If you have not, we'll be singing in just a moment to encourage you that you would make a change, that you would come to Christ or come to God, putting on Christ in baptism, allowing his blood to wash away your sins, leaving tonight with joy in your heart, knowing that if the world were to end or your life were to end, you know that you are a child of God. The Lord has added you to his church. Maybe you've done that in times past, but you've wandered away and allowed sin to enter your life. You can pray for forgiveness, repent of your sin, and God will do just that. The point is we have a choice, and God doesn't want us to leave with concern or worry, not knowing where we stand with him. But it takes a change on our part. It takes us making the effort to either step out into the aisle, to say the prayer, maybe if it's not of a public nature and you need to repent of something in your life, that you would do that even this evening in a private manner with God so that you don't have to leave with that worry on your mind. But it is a choice. And if you need to make a change, we'd encourage you to do so as we stand together and as we sing.